Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the BFI podcast. I'm Henry Barnes. Kirk Douglas died this week. Racking up close to 100 credits before his effective retirement in 2008, Douglas's career highlights included Spartacus, Champion, Ace in the Hole, Lonely Are the Brave and Paths of Glory. A pin-up, an artist, a charmer, a self-diagnosed son of a bitch. Douglas's century spanned an incredible period in film history, one in which he dabbled in just about every genre going. The sword and sandals epic, the boxing drama, the sci-fi romp, the war movie, the western. Here we present a conversation with Douglas recorded at the BFI South Bank, then the National Film Theatre, in 1972 when the actor was 55. The host was Sir Michael Parkinson. I'll drop in with the occasional note or clarification, but for the most part, Kirk will tell his own story. Enjoy. You know, I... Michael, I first want to say that I really don't believe it. Because what you're all doing here on this rare sunny day, I'll never <laughs> understand. And I was convinced that nobody would be here today because I have been in London quite a few times and I haven't seen as many of these beautiful days. So I must... I want to thank you all for coming, and I want to tell you that uh, what I'm doing today is much more difficult than pretending to be a boxer or a gladiator, because you see, an actor lives in the world of make-believe. You know, he's used to being on the screen where he's 20 feet tall, and suddenly you come on, and you're just your own self, and you feel rather naked without all the protection of the characters that you're supposed to be playing. And uh, there are a lot of hazards to my profession. For example, Michael and I were talking about uh, Champion. Champion, released in 1949, was Douglas's breakthrough role and won him his first Oscar nomination. He played boxer Midge Kelly, a fighter who claws his way up from destitution to become a contender. The story must have hit home. Douglas's parents, Brynner and Herschel, were poor Russian Jewish immigrants. Herschel worked as a rag and bone man when Douglas was young. Later, Douglas would attend drama school on a scholarship where a fellow pupil, seeing he had no money for a coat, would start their friendship by giving him her uncles. More on that in a bit. 
Now, when I first did Champion, you know, people begin to look at you and say, well, this guy doesn't look so tough. And I remember after Champion came out one day, I walked into a, a bar room and people recognized me and I kind of liked the recognition I was getting. And, and suddenly I saw two tough-looking fellows sitting at a, a table drinking and sort of mumbling to each other, he doesn't look so tough. And I saw one of them after he had a drink and he was a big fella, get up. And as he was walking toward me, I thought, oh boy, what's going to happen? And suddenly I slammed my fist down on the bar and everybody turned and looked at me and I said, anybody in this bar room can lick me. <laughs> and he just stopped and went right back. So if there's any, so if there are any of you in this uh, auditorium who feel aggressive, I want to say right now that anybody in this auditorium can lick me. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. I began to think how superfluous that is the occasion. <laughs> Talking about that, uh, that, that film, The Champion, which is uh, an interesting movie, and of course the one that started you off on, properly on your career. Did you get much... Um, it, it seemed to be a very authentic film about boxing. I mean, you looked authentic. You looked uh, an authentic prize fighter. Did you get much recognition or otherwise from the pros in the game? Well, it gave me a wonderful opportunity. First of all, I'm not a boxer at all. When I was at college, I was a wrestler. I uh, used to be an undefeated wrestling champion. And as a matter of fact, I worked in during the summer with the carnival. And at those days, I was the hero. I would be out in the audience. And when the man was trying to get someone to challenge uh, the carnival wrestler, I was the one that jumped up and... <laughs> And, uh, we re of course, the fellow I was wrestling was another man who was on the wrestling team with me at college, and we wrestled, we made some money that way. But I never did any, any boxing. But during the picture, I trained a lot, and I got a chance to meet a lot of the fighters. And I remember one day meeting uh, Rocky Graziano, who was quite a fighter, and he kept looking at me. And finally, at one time, he looked at me, reached over and touched my chin and says, what a target. <laughs> Douglas was good at playing this game. He knew how to make a confident of the audience to speak to journalists as if they, and only they, were getting a scoop. Check through the archive and you realise that these anecdotes, anyone can lick me, what a target, and more to come, were on repeat. That's not to say he didn't know how to wield them. He was a brilliant star, as good at playing Kirk Douglas as any of his other roles. Here's one from his press kit, the story about that coat. I had a friend, uh, Lauren Bacall, who, as a matter of fact, uh, was at dramatic school when I went to dramatic school. And her name was Betty then, Betty Bacall. Betty and I uh, were at dramatic school. Of course, she was in the freshman year at the, uh, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I was in the second year. And I remember I had an old overcoat. I was quite poor in those days, struggling like most uh, young people were, trying to get a career. And I had an old overcoat that someone had given me while I was at college, and it was really in awful shape. And she always thought, why did I wear that awful-looking coat until she realized I didn't uh, have much money? So she borrowed, she talked her uncle into giving her an overcoat, and she gave it to me, and I wore that coat for two years. These stories became his narrative, the tools of his rebranding. From poor New Yorker to L.A. superstar from a working-class boy surrounded by sisters to the patriarch of a Hollywood dynasty, from Issa Danielovich to Kirk Douglas. Well, what, what point was it uh, in, your, in, this, in these uh, early days in, in Hollywood that you changed your name? 
Oh, I changed. My name was changed years before that. Before, was it? Yeah, my name originally was Issa Danielovich, which is a wonderful name if you want to become a dancer. <laughs> but uh, then while I was at college, uh, we were doing summer stock. As a matter of fact, I remember Carl Malden, a wonderful actor, was in the summer stock company, and it got to be a whole game of what, what shall we, how shall we change his name? And so somehow out-evolved this name of uh, Kirk Douglas, which, of course, it took me years to kind of get used to it. I always thought, God, that's a phony-sounding name. <laughs> but uh, since I've had it for quite a few years... <laughs> You're used to, used to it now. Yeah, you and a few million other people are used to it. Douglas played heroes, but he was at his best with characters that weren't 100% proper. Nice guys had no edge and gave him nothing to cling to. People responded to Douglas the Dick. In the words of Kirk's son Michael, My father was the sensitive young man for seven pitchers until the champion. He played a prick and was nominated for an Oscar. I've always thought that virtue isn't photogenic. I've always felt more attracted to the part uh, of someone that's uh, got more bad in him than good. I've never had any desire to play the big, strong, good man. Mm. I'd rather play a big, strong, bad man. <laughs> yes. I think uh, as an actor, they're usually more challenging. Uh, there's something more interesting. I think you see that in the, you know, even in the movie subjects. I mean, that's why gangster pictures are so interesting. You know, people love... The rebel. People love to identify with a man who's rebelling against society. And the, the strongest rebels are usually people who are, have more bad in them than good. <laughs> you talk as if we were married. Oh, we're going to be. And tomorrow's as good a time as any. Tomorrow? Say, that's dandy. Tomorrow, huh? Well, why not? You got as much chance of marrying me tomorrow as today. That's no chance at all because... Uh, Guess what? I'm already married. While Douglas could play nice, he often wasn't. For a while, early in his career, he reveled in calling himself the most disliked man in Hollywood. The press ran with it. One writer called him a man of appalling energy. It wasn't entirely a compliment. This was, of course, what made him compelling. His insecurity fueled his ambition. He built a reputation as a brilliant actor and an incessant meddler. I've been very lucky because I think I've worked with a lot of good directors. I've worked with Kazan, I've worked with Howard Hawks, I've worked with Mankiewicz, uh, Willie Wyler. But I think Billy Wilder is, is, is to me one of the most talented and uh, one of the most amusing. He used to tell people, oh, Kirk Douglas, he said he's quite a character. And he had a wonderful story. He said, do you remember the picture of the defiant ones, yes, the black man and a white man? He says, well, he said, you know, they're trying to cast that picture. He said they went to Robert Mitchum to play in The Defiant Ones, and he says, hell, I'm not going to play with any black man. He says, and then they went to Marlon Brando. And Marlon said, yeah, I'll play in the picture, but I want to play the black man. <laughs> he said... Then he said... He said, then he said they went over to Kirk Douglas to play in The Defiant Ones, and Kirk says, yeah, but I want to play both parts. <laughs> So I think, uh, I think uh, Billy knows me pretty well. <laughs> the 
flip side of this was that Douglas was in tune with the audience. He understood that film's job was to entertain and then, maybe, enlighten. There's only one thing about movies that I hate, and that's pretension. I think uh, sometimes there's a, an attempt on the part of directors to become too intellectual, too philosophical, to try to impose, to be afraid of the word entertainment. Because uh, there's nothing more important than a person could do in filmmaking than to make a movie that uh, allows an audience to forget their own problems mm. for about uh, an hour and a half or two hours. I mean, I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And that's why people go to a movie. They don't go to a movie to learn the solution to a problem. And even though I see nothing wrong with uh, doing movies that deal with, uh, with problems, that make a statement, I think that always has to be a byproduct. I think originally you have to make a, a movie that entertains, that allows people to, uh, to forget, uh, to forget the, the problems of their own life. Timing is a very important factor. Uh, lots of times, for instance, Lonia the Brave, I think was a little ahead of its time. Uh, I think uh, Paths of Glory, of course, was ahead of its time. Now, the Brotherhood, uh, for some time I'd wanted to do a story about the Mafia. And what intrigued me about the Mafia was not just the action elements, and I think this is where I made a mistake, because I was too intrigued with the personal relationships of the family, the dichotomy of a man who does that kind of work, but how does he relate to his wife, his brother, his daughter, and that's what fascinated me. The Brotherhood, released in 1968, was directed by Martin Ritt, who delivered the classic thriller The Spy Who Came In From The Cold a couple of years earlier. A critical and commercial bomb, The Brotherhood nevertheless followed a formula that would prove successful, to put it mildly, for a later film. In The Brotherhood, Douglas plays Frank Ginetta, a mobster on the run from family. His brother, Vinny, may or may not have been sent to whack him. After the Brotherhood failed, its studio, Paramount, would wait four years before trying out another gangster picture, The Godfather. Now, I haven't seen The Godfather yet, but The Godfather seems to be a movie that does that. It, it has a very similar theme. It's the relationship of the, of the, uh, uh, the, the man to his wife and his family, but on the other hand, has a much bigger uh, canvas of giving you all the action. So... Maybe uh, the Brotherhood wasn't even a question of being a little ahead of its time. I think also it missed on not giving the public uh, the action that it needed. But now there's a trend, there's a whole interest in that type of picture. But that's something that either, you know, that's again luck. You happen to uh, come in on something at the right time. I mean, Easy Rider a year earlier or a year later may not have had the success that it had. It, a lot of it is timing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ace in the Hole, directed by Billy Wilder, was released in 1951. Douglas played Chuck Tatum, a ruthlessly ambitious journalist who, on coming across a treasure hunter trapped in a mine, risks a man's life to keep his story alive. Well, Mr. Boot, I was passing through Albuquerque. Had breakfast here. Read your paper. Thought you might be interested in my reaction. You bet I am. Well, sir, it made me throw up. I don't want you to think I expected the New York Times, but even for Albuquerque... This is pretty Albuquerque. Other name directors Douglas collaborated with included Vincente Minnelli on the behind-the-scenes of Hollywood melodrama The Bad and the Beautiful. Thought you said you were going to get rid of her quick. Shut up and get back upstairs. Elia Kazan on the 1969 film The Arrangement. You know what we're going to put on the tip of everybody's tongue. Mustn't say the dirty word here, but it's not the clean one, it's the big C. Otto Preminger on the 1965 epic In Harm's Way. All your personal problems resolved? Well, let's say they're uh, cut down the size. And, of course, Spartacus and Paths of Glory director Stanley Kubrick. I'm Spartacus! 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 Stanley was working with Marlon Brando for about a year. They were preparing uh, One-Eyed Jacks, and I was preparing uh, uh, Spartacus. And the studio, Universal, insisted on my using Anthony Mann, uh, who I thought was wrong for it, but a very... uh, He was a wonderful, wonderful guy, so we started the picture with him, and after the first week, the studio felt uh, that I should change him. So I had an unpleasant job because he was a, a wonderful guy, Tony Mann, of saying, Tony, it's, it's not going to work. And he was very nice about it. As a matter of fact, as a result of that, I said, I always said, I owe you, I feel I owe you a picture. And years later, I did Heroes of Telemark with him uh, because of that conversation. So there I was. It was Friday at the end of shooting, and I told him that. I, so I called Stanley because Stanley Kubrick had just been fired by Marlon Brando. So I said, Stanley, read this script. He read the script. And uh, Stanley, who, Kubrick, who has a good, healthy ego, 
I said, do you like it? He said, yeah. I said, when will you be ready to shoot it? He said, Monday. <laughs> this was just over the weekend. So we actually started shooting Tuesday, and uh, I thought he did some brilliant things. I wish that we had had the chance to uh, start work on it from the earliest stage of preparation, but as a director, you know, he's obviously a brilliant director and did many brilliant things uh, in the directing of Spartacus. Running through these names, hearing his memories, you realise how extraordinary the time Douglas was operating in was. This was an era of artists working on a grand scale. Douglas distrusted the idea of the auteur and made a point of emphasising the collaborative nature of filmmaking. But he recognised that he was working at a time of mega-talent and he acted with some of the biggest names in Hollywood history while he became one himself. His favourite actor was a contemporary and one of the all-time greats. I still think uh, one of the actors that I think has made, given some of the best performances, I've never worked with him, I still think is Marlon Brando. I think he's given uh, some brilliant performances, and uh, I'm glad because I predicted as a matter of fact, when he played in The Godfather, that I thought he'd be brilliant in that part. I'm very anxious to see that because I think potentially uh, Brando has been a giant. I think he sometimes, like anyone else, has missed, but the potential, uh, I think, is there for probably one of the greatest actors of this whole uh, of this whole period, I would think. Well, what is the quality, Kirk, that do you think that, uh, that he possesses that the others don't have? Well, I tell you, I tell you exactly. Years ago, uh, I went to a play, uh, Truckline Cafe. It didn't run very long. And I went to see it because I was up for a part, a small part, and had a good scene in the third act. And I went to see it, and I didn't get that part. So I went to see the play, and there was some fellow, Marlon Brando. I said, who the hell is he? And he was playing the, he played the part. And I saw him in the first act, and I thought, he's terrible. <laughs> and I saw him in the second act, and I thought, he's terrible. And suddenly he erupted in the third act. And I just was dazed. You see, suddenly, you see, what Brando has is this ability to smother, to smother, to smother, and then to just let one thing come out. And that one moment, you know, just will, will dazzle you. And I think he has a, a great power. He has a feeling like uh, he can give you that thing that's like a, a volcano is seething. It's way down, very quietly, way, way down. And that's a great quality. See, that's something that very few actors actors have, but I think uh, Brando has it more than anyone I know. Enough about him. <laughs> Here, Douglas moves from talking about Brando to a young actor who had just started his career, his own son, Eric. Eric, then 13, had just appeared with his dad in the gunfight and was in the audience at this talk. He was invited to ask Kirk a question. All right, you ask your dad a question. Go on. Make it a difficult one. How did you like work? <laughs> Eric, you were one of my favorite co-stars. <laughs> Eric, Kirk's youngest son and half-brother to Michael Douglas, never achieved the same success. He grew up to be an actor and a comic who lived with addictions to drink and alcohol. He could be erratic and wild, not great at playing the game. 
he found his famous family alienating. Once describing growing up with Michael, his half-brother Joel, and his brother Peter, both now producers, as one kid, one housekeeper, and one dog, living next to another kid with one housekeeper and one dog. Eric died of a drug overdose in 2004. A piece in The Guardian written in the week of his death called him The Lost Son. That relationship gets very difficult because he's too much like me. He's hyperactive, Kirk told the Chicago Tribune. I sometimes say to him, loving you and hating you is like loving and hating myself. In the same piece, Eric said, we're both perfectionists, energetic, passionate, intense. We make things happen. It makes us difficult to be around. I don't watch my films on television. Uh, My children do. I have four sons, and they sometimes watch some of my films on television, but but I don't. As I said, the only picture that I've enjoyed watching that I'm in is uh, uh, Lonely of the Brave. But generally, if my pictures are playing on television, I turn over and see someone else's movie. For into this area of sort of watching yourself and the problems of being a, a star and this sort of thing, I mean, you've been in the stuff for 25 years now. Do, do you have real problems of wherever you go being recognized, of, of, of not getting privacy? Or? Well, you know, one day I was in New York rushing to a luncheon appointment, and across the street someone yelled, Hey, hey! And he rushed across. He said, oh, I'm so excited. He said, my favorite movie star, my favorite movie star. And I said, thank you. I said, I'm rushing to an appointment. He said, he said, you know, I, I, I'm so excited. He said, you, your name just went right out of my head. <laughs> I said, and he kept, and he kept hanging on to me. And he said, I'm, I'm, gee, you're my favorite movie star. He said, tell me, please, what was your name? <laughs> And I said, Douglas. Yeah, he said, Douglas Fairbanks, you're my <laughs> So it's, you know, it's funny, some of the things that happen. I one day was driving a little car to Palm Springs. We have a house in Palm Springs. And a sailor was hitchhiking. I stopped the car. A young little blonde-haired sailor came in. And he got, he got in the car, and he looked. He said, hey, do you know who you are? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I once did the, I once did the reverse to somebody. I was once, I was once in, uh, it was in a, I think it was somewhere like, uh, we're somewhere like in Cincinnati. And it was in a hotel. I was there with a movie. And they had a big convention on it. And everybody was going around with big buttons, you know, saying, I'm Joe Doggerty, you know, Fresno, California, or something like that. And this one character comes in the elevator, and he looks at me, and he's so excited, he says, Kirk. And I said, looking at this big sign, I said, Joe. <laughs> And he says, you know me. <laughs> and I said, Joe, Joe Doggerty? He said, yeah. <laughs> I said, from Fresno, California? He said, yeah. <laughs> I said, Joe, you don't remember me? And by this time, I got at my floor and I walked off and he was looking at me with this. <laughs> Good old Joe Doggerty. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the BFI podcast. Special thanks this time around to Parkinson Productions and Sir Michael Parkinson for clearance to use Sir Michael's contribution in this episode. Thanks as ever to Sarah Current in the BFI's library and Peter Stanley in the technical department for help sourcing the audio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go Facial Set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.